From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, very glad that you're with us today here on Open Line Friday on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Jack Williams away today. I'm Tom Price, delighted to be joined by America's favorite theologian, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are you? With the mic, I'm doing pretty good. Without it, not so well. That is very helpful to have the mic, you know, because that's kind of, do we have to get into physics here? I hope not. No, we don't. Good, good. Here's our phone number. (laughs) This is a standing joke with Jack and I, by the way. Is it really? It is, sadly. (laughs) It's just like, well, you're just talking into the air. A microphone helps. We're also used to earbuds with microphones and things like Ah. that. We just sort of think we just speak to the world and Alexa or or one of these people just answers us right back. Now I understand. (laughs) All right. Here's our phone number. And that is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you have a question for Colin, uh, we're here to get those questions, all things theological, uh, answered on today's program, Open Line Friday, 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. Uh, or if you prefer to send us an email, the address openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. Make sure you put Friday in the subject line or Colin or theology. That way we can marry up uh, your email with the proper host. As we're wrapping up uh, kind of the last stretch here of Advent, and you mentioned before the show that we're going to be uh, starting the O antiphons. What is that? Well, these are the antiphons in the week bef- used in before uh, before Christmas. Okay, that are used both in the liturgy of the hours and and the mass as uh, an antiphon means something before a psalm or a canticle, uh, and so in each of these it references you know O tree of Jesse or or one of the messianic uh, foreshadowings of our Lord uh, given in the Old Testament, and so. What each uh, we are basically then celebrating one of these elements uh, during during the course of these last days of, of Advent. I think families especially are familiar with the Jesse tree, and you get oh, your sure. kids involved with yep. you know the messianic titles of our Lord that are given in the Old Testament and things like that. So this this is sort of the summation of all of that with those those, those great messianic foreshadowings, uh, such as uh, the Jesse tree or the or, uh, tree of Jesse. This when root, I think of, of Jesse. yeah, when I think of O, uh, the first thing I think of is O come, O come, Emmanuel. Right. Would that be one of the O antiphons? Uh, at, towards the very end, it is. I think the last one may be may be that. I don't have the list in front of me, but uh, you know, it is precisely. You know, we're we're sort of building uh-huh. towards it, and uh-huh. so on Christmas Eve, of course, we now go on into into Christmas itself uh, with the Vigil of Christmas and Midnight Mass. Very good. Here's an uh, an email that we received from Kathy. Is there a difference in praying out loud or in your head, or does it or, or does it matter? It doesn't matter before God. What matters is the devotion and the attention that you bring to prayer. 
Uh, even the prayers that you pray in your head, if you pray the Our Father and Hail Mary, generally are categorized as oral prayer as uh -huh. opposed to mental prayer, which refers to meditation or your own, you know, contemplation, reasoned contemplation of a of a holy topic. Mm. You know, it might be the incarnation or something like that. But uh, insofar as the value before God, there is there's no difference uh, whether you say a prayer mentally or say a prayer orally. And I think sometimes people get that confused because you'll often find people who feel they have to pray the rosary out loud. And even if they're in church, they're, you know, saying mm. the prayers yeah. under their breath or something like that. And that that's not necessary for those oral prayers, which can be said mentally, although there is this other and confusingly named class called mental prayer, yes. which is more of meditation, my personal meditation or reflection on on the words themselves. Yeah. And so when we do pray the rosary, we are supposed to be contemplating, and that would be the mental prayer aspect accompanying the oral praying of the, of the prayers of the rosary. We are live on this uh, Friday afternoon here on EWTN Radio with Open Line with Colin Donovan here to answer your questions at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Ron in North Royalton, Ohio, listening on AM 1260 The Rock, says, Given that God is all-merciful and forgiving, had Adam and Eve sought forgiveness and received it, would that have negated our need for a Savior? No, because we assume that they did uh, seek it and, for, and receive it. Uh, Adam and Eve are, and this is probably not known to many Catholics, uh, these kinds of things are better known in the East than they are in the West, mm. they are on the calendar of the church. The calendar of the church is loaded on each day by very often a dozen or more saints that have been given a particular feast day. We're familiar the ones which get on the general calendar of the entire church yeah. or the particular calendar of a religious congregation or a diocese or, or something like that. But in reality, there are many Old Testament figures who are on the Roman calendar and whether or not they are can be found by going to the Roman Martyrology which is updated every few years. I think the most recent updating was about 2006 or so. And in there you will find Adam and Eve and David the king, and you will find Elijah and Elisha and the great prophets mentioned there. So those holy figures of we encounter in the Old Testament are recognized as saints by the church. So clearly Adam and Eve, the church understands, as having repented and been forgiven uh, and then they established the line of patriarchs, which preserved their, you know, the knowledge that there is a God and so on, down to the time of Revelation, first to Abraham, who knew God, and uh, specifically Moses. So uh, all, all of that is part of our own salvation history as Christians as well. Very good. It's uh, Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. Uh, your chance to get in right now at 833 288-EWTN. Here's a little inside Catholic baseball from uh, John, who says, there are only two octaves left in the liturgical calendar, Christmas and Easter. My understanding has been that each day of the octave is as though it were the original holy day. Is, or in the octave, it's a little convoluted here, in the octave of Easter, 
any memorial or feast on the calendar would be omitted in deference to the prolongation of Easter. And that makes perfect sense. Why is the octave of Christmas different? Why doesn't it follow the same preference for the eight days that the Easter octave does? Specifically, in the octave of Christmas, we celebrate St. Stephen and St. John. Thanks, Colin, for whatever insight you can provide. Right. Uh, Following the Jewish practice, the church has adopted the practice of the octave. And so, for example, there was the eight days of celebration of unleavened bread associated Mm -hmm. with uh, with Passover. And so the church uh, began certainly with its great feast and its first feast, uh, the celebration of Easter, uh, which sort of led the way in establishing the liturgical calendar. Christmas coming later, and so uh, the application of the octave to that. But, you know, all of the in the case of Easter, you're celebrating something unique and singular that whole week. And, of course, now we celebrate Mercy Sunday and its connection with Easter uh, the Sunday after is the end of the octave. So we are indeed cel- celebrating a different feast, as it were, on that day as part of the octave. But already, as, as he noted, we have you know, St. Stephen and St. John, and they are connected in a certain way with the life and, and mission of our Lord. Uh, St. Stephen is the first martyr. St. John is his beloved disciple. So I think there is there's a logic there that you can't find in putting saints in that Easter cycle. Um, and so I think that's perhaps speculatively the reason why uh, the development of the Christmas cycle followed a different path than that of the Easter cycle. Very good. And one final one as we're going to break from Dieter. What do I say to people who say that Christmas is a pagan day, the Christians having co-opted Mithra, Saturnalia, etc. for its own purposes? Well, I would say that there is absolutely no historical evidence or other than defaming polemic uh, to show either of those things, and no scholarship has ever really demonstrated that those were the cases, rather that they're different. It's the logic of the church that Christ surplanted paganism, whether it was simply the, you know, the the mental, the, the human imaginative development of peoples mm-hmm. because they have to worship something greater than themselves or because it had some demonic inst- in, uh, inspiration. The church, Christ simply surplanted them and so the very first practice that the church uh, ever did was to plant Christian churches on top of pagan places because that demonstrated the victory of Christ. And so whether there was an ancient feast in some location on the calendar prior to a Christian feast, uh, nothing, there's nothing to that other than this principle of being at work. Something greater than this. Something greater than this has appeared on the scene with Christ. Yes, indeed. Stay with us. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or... Send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, lines are open right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a a question for Colin Donovan, 
888-288-3986. We'll get to the phones in uh, just a couple seconds here. Uh, we'll also find out exactly what those O antiphons are. Uh, but first, I want to tell you about something wonderful now available from EWTN's religious catalog, just in time for Christmas. I think this is the coolest thing. I, I know that uh, our son, when he was a, a wee lad, was a big fan of Legos. And yes. up in the attic, we've got, you know, buckets full of Legos. And he says, don't throw them out. Don't throw them out. I want them. I want them. Okay. He's 31 now. He still wants those Legos. But we're well, off. Well, you know, I won't say the obvious here, but. Careful now. <laughs> Careful. Uh, we are offering the Father Leopold Celebrates Mass Lego set. Now, this is a very cool and fun gift. It may be for the kids, but, hey, the whole family will love Father Leopold the world's smallest priest. Father Leopold is on a mission to share the good news of Jesus Christ with many figures everywhere. With new clerics and a friendly face, he's ready to preach the gospel and bring the sacraments to his people. This set features 171 genuine Lego bricks and three modified bricks. We're talking there about Father Leopold's Roman collar, the Roman Missal, the lectionary. These were all custom printed. Very, very cool. Also included is a green chasuble for ordinary time, red and white for feast days, and even a purple one for Advent and Lent. Probably not the rose one, though. Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> this set comes with a 28-page full-color instruction guide that makes building the altar, the ambo, the credence table, presider's chair, and taber tab tabernacle literally a snap. <laughs> Rim shot on the word snap. So you know what we're talking about here if you've played with Legos for more than five minutes. It's recommended for kids ages six and up. It's available right now at EWTNRC.com. My personal recommendation is you better call them today uh, because, you know, Christmas is uh, coming. At, around the corner. And what, a, what an upgrade from my mother's dressing table Welch's grape juice and Ritz crackers and would have been the traditional Latin mass in those yes, days, the daily yes. missal from, yes. uh, you know, the Marian missal is the version I had. Yeah. You Spencer know. used the uh, Necco wafers, <laughs> you know, because they, they come in all different colors, but you can get just the white ones. Oh, okay. So there you go. <laughs> A great product. Do, do contact them at EWTN RC.com. And uh, before we go to the phones in uh, just a moment here, why don't you tell us what those O antiphons are? Right. I, I have a listing of it here. Um, uh, for on the 17th, it's, oh, this is, we start with the Latin, of course, since yes. that's the, 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 the Latin, the Roman Missal is in Latin and yeah. everything else is translated from it. O Sapientia, O Wisdom, a reference to Sirach, the Book of Wisdom, mm -hmm. and the prophet Isaiah and Proverbs. Uh, wisdom is being understood as the word of God, pouring forth from the mind of God. And, of course, Christ is the word made flesh, so there's a direct reference there. Okay. Uh, o Adonai, which is a word for, for Lord, for God, that was used by the Jews in reference to, uh, to Yahweh. Uh, and so, in English, often translated, O Sacred Lord, the Exodus, Isaiah, Micah, uh, being Old Testament sources on that. Uh, o Radix Jesse, Flower of Jesse's stem or root of Jesse. Okay. We talked about that. Again, Isaiah, Habakkuk uh, are the sources for that on the 19th. O Clavis, David. O Key of David. Mm. Uh, and, of course, uh, Christ is the descendant of David and inheriting the authority of David by nature. 
and of course of the Father by by His uh, divine nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, uh, well, one more, two more, three more. O Orients, O Radiant Dawn is uh, one way is translated, and of course we. Uh, uh, the the sun rising is often used as a, a an a, analogy or metaphor to mm-hmm. to Christ, who is the light uh, light of the world, uh, and so that's a, was an appropriate foreshadowing in Isaiah and Zechariah and Malachi. O Rex Gentium, O King of all nations. Of course, we're familiar from the great movie, O King of Kings. Yes, that Christ is the King of all of all nations, all planets, all all galaxies, and. Yeah. If there's a multiverse, all multiverses as well. So there we go. Okay. Uh, Isaiah and the Psalm 47, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Haggai, Haggai uh, as well. And finally, we mentioned this earlier, the last one, O Emmanuel, and it's actually on the 23rd, um, Emmanuel meaning God incarnate. Um, and so on the 24th, as we noted as well, the uh, Christmas Eve, you begin into that you know, Christmas liturgy of the vigil of, of Christmas with midnight mass and, and so on. So All right. uh, through the 23rd, the great O Anaphons, you can find them online in the Liturgy of the Hours in connection with the canticles of the day, morning prayer and evening prayer, uh, and also uh, in, in the Mass it is used as well. Thank you so much for that. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. Here is Rochelle uh, listening to us in Alliance, Nebraska, online, EWTN.com. Rochelle, what's on your mind today? So um, I have a question about how to um, background. My father uh, spent 20 years in prison for molesting me, and he just mm-hmm. recently was released from prison in 2020. And I'm really struggling with letting go of the hatred that's in my heart. I'm wondering how I can use prayer and talking to God to let go of the hatred. Sure, yeah, and and I'll assume that you've used the human resources of our, that are available in psychology and in, in the church as well for uh, for that, and especially with our own clerical sex abuse crisis. Uh, there's been a, a, a blossoming of those possibilities, I'm sure, both in the church and in the secular world as well. I think you have to understand what hatred is, and I'll, I'll go back about 2,300 years for this to Aristotle, and St. Thomas Aquinas picks it up. Hatred is seeing something as an obstacle to the good, and so you hate it because it's in your way. And clearly, in this case, it's not inappropriate to say, I hate the sin, the evil that was done to me. But what you need to do is then separate that from the person for whom you should have. Obviously, you have the obligation of a child for its father. Uh, you got received your life from him, so there's a natural obligation. And even the supernatural obligation of charity, that you should, you should desire his salvation. You say he's in prison to pray that this will be an occasion of conversion for him. So I think what you do by thinking that way is to turn the focus from your own suffering and what you experienced, which is, is you know, not insignificant and not unimportant yeah, at all yeah. and needs its own treating on that natural level, but supernaturally to turn then your focus to him and to seek mercy for him, seek mercy of God. 
uh, that he would uh, that he would convert him and change him uh, and bring him to to Christ if he has any sense of faith left in him. So I think that's the way to do that. And one aspect of that could be the the chaplet of divine mercy uh, to pray that chaplet for him. And I think a wholehearted prayer for the other, whatever the circumstances, it might be maybe somebody who, you know, took all your family's money. Think of this. I don't, I don't want to mention his name. It's such a, a horrible evil that was perpetrated through the, you know, through the electronic currency, The uh, this fella. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. So lots of reasons to say to really hate what's being done to you on that level. Uh, but at the same time, not to hate the person who think of their sad state of affairs in one sense, because uh, you you know what he did to you was wrong. It was undeserved on your part, certainly. Uh, he's paying the price on the natural level. But to, to, wi- to wish for him and to anybody who does us evil, that they themselves would be changed, that they would see that evil. Has he ever manifested sorrow to you at any time? No. Well, make that your goal then. Make that your goal that he will have a, such a change of heart that he will repent wholeheartedly of what he did for you and want to make amends, even if it's only to offer the rest of his life in prison for others and for people yeah. who's he, whom he has hurt. Uh, that would that would be a goal to set for yourself, I think, and use the natural means, of course, that are available to mm-hmm. psychologically sure. and through counseling sure. and so on. I, well, you know, if Mother Angelica was sitting here at one of these microphones, the first thing she she would say is, "I am so sorry." Yeah. Oh, she'd say, "Oh, honey, I am so sorry," and and we are sorry. Uh, but uh, some great advice there from Colin. Thank you so much for your call, Rochelle. And in her own way, with the, her her father, who is a drunkard, and yep. you know, really in a sense, destroyed their family, and she and her mother made the best of it. Yeah. Uh, You know, so it. a lot of people in the world suffering through such things, whether it's exactly what what she suffered or what, uh, say, mother suffered in her own life as a child. God bless you, Rochelle. Thank you so much uh, for your call. Quick question here from Sean. Oh, let me give you out the phone numbers first. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288. 2883986. Sean says, "How should I tell my Protestant friend about purgatory?" Well, I think you could start. Uh, do they have a na- an understanding of justice on a natural level? Ah, uh, yeah. You know, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that you know if you if you have a debt with somebody or if you were in an argument with somebody, settle with them on the way to the judge. Mm-hmm lest the judge throw you in prison and you're not let out until you're uh, paid the last penny. penny. Was Jesus really talking about bankruptcy court or divorce court or no? He was talking as the judge himself. And so he was giving us a prescription for this life that we we must pay our debts of justice in this life. Now, oddly, he didn't say they'll go and burn in fiery hell. He said that to some when he described the unrepentant individuals uh, and who lived horribly in evil lives, that they would end up 
in the in the fire created by the devil and his angels. So that there are then three destinations that are mentioned in in scripture by Christ himself, heaven, the prison, and hell. The prison is temporary for paying the dust temporal debt that we have because of the injury we've done to ourselves. Uh, heaven is for those who have embraced the eternal reparation that Christ did on the cross, so that's for our grave sins, but. which were against God himself, uh, and all sin is in, indirectly against God. Uh, so that's a different uh, solution and a different purpose, and for that we have the sacrament of reconciliation. So different destinations, all of them spoken of by Christ, although the church later put the words and the names to them. Sean, thanks so much for your email. Hey, lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN for Open Line Friday. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Glad you're with us for Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. Lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Uh, toward the bottom of the hour, we like to say, if you call right now, we can probably get you on today's show. But don't delay. 833-288-EWTN. Hey, we'd like to say hello to another member of the EWTN radio family celebrating an anniversary this week. We're uh, calling out Northern Apostle Radio, in a good way, in Marquette, Michigan. They are celebrating eight years on the air. Congratulations to Tim and Faye Presley from all your friends here at EWTN Radio. My hat is always off to uh, our affiliates, mm-hmm. people who in some in some cases have put up their own money, sometimes put up their own house for collateral to get a radio station started. That is really stepping out in faith. It really is. And every year we had our radio conference uh, with our family celebration in Phoenix. Yes. And- at the radio conference, it's always nice to try to talk to a different, typically it's the founder themselves still coming to it, mm-hmm. although some have passed the baton on or are about to. And you hear these stories, and they're all phenomenal. There's not a one that isn't phenomenal, how this, how the Lord helped them and everything fell into place and, and it came about. It's just amazing. I know that uh, our friends at uh, Real Presence Radio, their first station was one computer in a closet in a Newman Center in Grand <laughs> Forks. And now they're on something like, I don't know, 30 radio stations serving five states. Yeah. So it can be done. It can be, and the Lord will provide as Mother always uh, affirmed. Every time. Our phone number here, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Henry emailed us and said, how do I respond to Protestant friends who challenge the sacrament of confession. Well, I, I think it's it's part of the Easter story. The fact that Christ said to the apostles, um, whether Easter Sunday night or we celebrate it on the second Sunday of Easter, some of those accounts not totally clear. But in any case, having risen from the dead, mm-hmm. in seeing the apostles. He says, peace be with you, my peace I give you. Whose Mm -hmm. sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. The purpose of the passion, death, and resurrection of the Lord was the reconciliation of God with man, or rather, man with God. 
And so as a consequence of that, the very first gift he gave to the church after his resurrection was reconciliation. He gave us the Eucharist at the Last Supper. He gave us the Sacrament of Reconciliation uh, in Easter. And so from this, the church grows around these two sacraments. And so it's biblical. It's evident. He gives to the apostles the power to forgive or retain sins. Mm -hmm. Forgive meaning to acknowledge that the individual and acting in a ministerial way, acknowledging you have confessed with sincerity and ministerially as a representative of Christ in the church, I absolve you from your sins. This is the direct communication of authority by Christ to his church in the apostles mm. and from the apostles to their successors and the priests who are their assistants in their apostolic ministry. And so this couldn't be clearer in sacred scripture. Now, if you're looking for, and I hereby order you to have a sacrament of reconciliation, no, you're not going to see that. But the apostles knew what they were doing, and the next generation of the church knew what it was doing, and the generation after that. And so this understanding that the church had the authority to absolve from sin or to say, wait a minute, you're not sincere. I can't absolve you if you're insincere. I cannot make your lie the truth of God that you're forgiven for your lie. Yeah. And so you, the priest retains this power was also given to the apostles, and thankfully, priests don't have to use it very often, as they themselves will attest, but it's there for them as the, you know, sort of the, the last barricade to the sacrilege against the, the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ. So <laughs> if, you're, if you're going to confession and you're confessing something, and please don't say, I'm really sorry that I got caught. That's, Absolutely. That, that's, that's not the not, approach. That's not the way to do it. You know? Don't do that. You can say, I'm sorry I'm going to hell because that's imperfect contrition. Yeah. And that is the starting point of perfect contrition. And the sacrament will assist you with with making more of it than you bring, more of what you bring than you sure. yourself bring sure. through grace. But no, not this, uh, you know, I really didn't do anything. Yeah, but I'm here because my mother told me to go to confession at Saturday. Don't do that. Don't do that. It won't do you any good. And uh, Jesus will, will cry over that kind of, yeah. uh, uh, you know, taking what he did so unserious. Sure. Henry, thank you so much uh, for your email. Let's go to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Peter in Baton Rouge listening on the great Catholic Community Radio. Hello, Peter. Happy Advent. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi, happy Advent. Um, so when I was a kid, uh, I remember asking my mom, uh, how do I know that like the story of Jesus wasn't something that somebody made up? So I had questions, and I was very young. Uh, and uh, she, I remember that she was a little bit bitter at me for even asking the question, and that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Now, it didn't, it didn't push me away from the faith. Me and my, one of my brothers, we're still Catholic, but we have two other brothers, and they, are, they have fallen far away from the Church. Mm -hmm. And one of them cited that as a reason that he left, and I don't really think that had my mother done any better that it would have changed his course in his life, but I am curious for my own future— when I have children, do you have any advice on how I could encourage, like, to, to make my child know that it's okay to ask questions in a way that doesn't promote them to um, doubt or, uh, like, that doesn't discourage their faith? Sure. Okay. 
Yeah. Uh, first of all, I would say I wouldn't randomly encourage your children or your best friend or anybody to simply, uh, you know, ask questions that constitute a doubt. But if they ever express a doubt, to answer their questions. Now, very typically, as a parent, and you've you've been over this road. Uh, yes. It's been a what a decade or so a now. While, a, a while. while yeah. A while. Uh, you end up mostly trying to teach your children the faith, and then in the context of that, they ask a question in which you then have to explain it. The difficulty for parents is not not all parents are up to explaining it in a cogent way or any way, saying, well, I'm, you know, you can't just say, well, I'm telling you this is the way. There are three persons in the Trinity, not two or four, and there is a Trinity and there is a God. No, you have to try to give some kind of an answer. So it starts with, being well enough informed yourself, I think, to, to catechize or to direct the person to somebody who does. It's one of the reasons why the church has generally insisted and still does today that parents send their children to catechism classes so that at least they get somebody who has a, you know, some formation in yeah, answering yeah. doubts and questions and may themselves may have significant uh, knowledge from their reading and so on and so forth. So I think for most parents, you have to try to teach the catechism and perhaps do the understanding yourself. The church was given, you know, in, in the day, the, the catechism of the Council of Trent, the Roman catechism, in order to broadly catechize, uh, make it a, a catechesis available through the parish past priest to uh, to everybody and there were me don't realize that there were not seminaries as we understand them before the Council of Trent and so even priests might could do the sacraments and and do all those things and not have a very strong formation in uh, in the theological explanations of things so the catechism of the Catholic Church serves the same purpose it allows those who themselves are formators, whether in an ecclesiastical setting or whether they're, they're uh, parents or whether they're individuals who generally may be you know, a Catholic in a non-Catholic environment. Yeah. I, I know as a Catholic in the university and the Navy and that, I was all, and, and in the work, work, working world, was always answering people's questions about the faith. It made me want to read more and more and more about it and look where I am now. So uh, I guess, you know, good or bad, depending on your oh, point of view. Come on now. So uh, th- that's the thing. Be educated yourself. Be prepared to answer the doubts as, as, uh, as we're told in Scripture to give a reason for one's hope. And if you don't know, say, well, you know, maybe your mother could have said, or maybe she did say, you know, I don't know the answer, but maybe Sunday you can catch Father and ask him that question or something like that. Yeah. So get a proper answer. Don't try to wing it or or, or do it in a way that, you know, simply fans the doubt that's being expressed by the child or the friend sure. or the relative. Sure, and, and as, as Peter is uh, saying here, in, in his own way, um, be be friendly, be approachable. Just say, look, you can ask me anything you want, and then you know try to give that answer that is number one, age appropriate, because you don't want to give a Mensa level uh, answer to a six year old. Right. But yeah. uh, you know, and then as you're also saying here, let's let me uh, quote here from the Gospel according to John Martinoni. I don't know, but I'll find out and I'll get back to you. 
Right. And I think uh, for, for parents, the best advice is make sure that they're getting a solid catechesis. Yes. And if they're not able to do that because of particular circumstances, uh, Ignatius Press, and I think our Sunday Visitor also, public, these are good, solid Catholic publishers. They have catechetical resources. Uh, you can teach your children catechism at home. Yeah. Or in the, uh, the bad old days, very often you could send them to catech- catechism, and then you would have to teach them catechism at home to undo what they were learning from their catechism. That, mm. fortunately, I think has greatly, greatly declined. Please, Lord. Yeah. So whether you're supplementing or whether you're the, the teacher of first instance of religion to your children, have good resources available good catechetical resources such as you can get from Ignatius Press or Our Sunday Visitor. Yeah. Uh, and then be, be read yourself. Try to understand sure. these things yourself so you can bring it down to your child's level because you know your child better than even a, a catechism teacher would know them from a weekly time spent with them. God bless you, Peter. Uh, you're going to be just fine. Don't worry about it. It'll be great. It's uh, Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. A couple of lines open, and we can probably squeeze you in at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. This Sunday evening, be sure to check out Catholic Answers Live, uh, the best of Catholic Answers Live. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern, EWTN, the, the official radio home for Catholic Answers. And uh, this weekend, it'll be two hours of open line with Joe Heschmeyer answering all of your questions. Again, check it out uh, Sunday evening, 6 p.m. Eastern, right here and only here on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to Richard in Midland, Georgia, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Richard, happy Advent. What's on your mind today? Thank you. I'd like to know what the worded original sin comes from. The original original sin is a term to describe that when man was ensouled, he was ensouled with the light of God's grace in that soul, and by his disobedience, he lost that, and all of his descendants are born without it. In other words, it's a deficiency from the way in which man created was created. Mm-hmm. Now. There, of course, will be multiple theories of how that came about. Uh, Special creation says that the literal meaning of the book of Genesis is that, you know, precisely as described there, God took clay, Mm -hmm. formed Adam, took Eve as his rib from the side. And so this all happened, you know, essentially in in an instant. Uh That would be special creation. The church doesn't oblige Catholics to believe that that's the way it happened. I think science is giving a a picture. It's interesting that I think it's a euphemism, but when you you look on the genetic side, uh, they talk about the Adamic Y, that there is a single, there was all the Y chromosomes that every human male in the world has. can go back if you go see the rates of mutation and you back the clock up to the beginning, Mm -hmm. there was an original Y genome or original uh, Y genetic makeup, Mm -hmm. which in time is now variations based on mutations that have occurred over a very long period of time. And so they speak of the Adamic Y. 
And for women, for the predominant identifying thing, since they have two X's, they don't have a, you know, a unique sex chromosome. Uh, however, because the egg contains all the matter, which makes up the nascent human being, um, then they use the mitochondria of the woman. And this is the, uh, the, the organelle inside a cell which does the reproduction of, the, of all of the materials that are needed by the cell. The, mm. the, the genome encodes them. The mitochondria takes that information, uh, uses it, and creates the proteins and so on that are needed by the cells. And they do a similar thing there with, with mutations in the mitochondria, and they back it up to what someone they call, they call her Eve, mitochondrial Eve. So we have these two facts where all m women seem descended from one woman, while men seem descended from one Y. The scientists don't have them in the same time frame, however. So we'll let science do its work. But the basic thing that I think we're being told here is that even if you were to take the most skeptical position that, you know, human, the current species of man, Homo sapiens sapien, descended from some earlier one, Homo erectus, you've got Homo neanderthalus, you've got Homo australia, australis, and all of these different versions of, of the of genus Homo, mm -hmm. even if you take that point of view, there is a qualitative difference between human beings and all other pre-existing hominids and all other creatures. No other creature in the universe that we are aware of, or at least on this planet, has produced civilization, music, art, science, all the things. There is an intellectual difference, a spiritual difference, and intellect and spirit is the same in philosophy, a spiritual difference. And that spiritual difference points to however man came to be formed, there was an act of God involved in humanizing him, and that's the soul. And that's what the scripture is telling us. Man is an ensouled animal. No other animal is. No other pre-existing hominid that science finds was an ensouled animal. We are, body and soul. That's what distinguishes us. And when those first humans sinned, they lost that original grace that they were given. And that's what Adam and Eve represents. And I think We'll wait and see if science ever gets them in the same time frame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, th that's, sort of, that's sort of irrelevant. We know that we're different from every other animal, despite all of the blather that is poured out about we're just material creatures and our brains and our consciousness is just, you know, chemicals bumping against each other. Uh, we know this is that a theological term, blather, right? Blather. That, that, that's, you All only right. get that in fourth theology, so you may not have heard it before. Got it. You know. Got it. Okay. Uh, so... I think recognizing that difference. The important thing to remember on all of these kinds of questions is the church doesn't tie itself to any scientific explanation. The church takes what has been revealed by God and teaches mm -hmm. what that means. 
and it permits us to think about the different ways that could be have been fulfilled. But as Pope Pius XII insisted in the 40s in discussing this, and John Paul II likewise in the 90s, you cannot speak of man simply arising from matter alone because of the soul, and that can only come from God. And only original sin can come from an ensouled human being. And we call that first ensouled human being who committed that sin, Adam. And there we are. There we are. Uh, Richard, thank you so much uh, for your question. We hope that's helpful for you. Larry sent us an email. He says, I don't see evidence in the Bible for the perpetual virginity of Mary. Matthew 1, verse 25 seems to say otherwise. Can you help me to understand this? Um, I, I don't have that verse at the, you know, on my fingertips here, but is this, is this in reference to, oh, at the end of the genealogy, I believe, where it says that they're firstborn? Uh-huh. I think so. Yeah. Well, that, that's basically what we would say in the church today. Well, that's a canonical term that said that this is the one who inherits everything and, you know, is the first, uh, the first adult male, the first male of this, of mm. this individual. Okay. So uh, that doesn't mean that there's a second born. He's simply the first born. You know, so if, if, if you're the Earl of Blather, for example. Yes. You know, then uh, if... If uh, there is no other children born of, of the Earl's parents, mm-hmm. he's still the firstborn and the one who will become, you know, the, the, the one child. Is, yeah. Well, there, his child will be the, the heir apparent. Yes. And so he's the firstborn, even if there are no seconds and thirds and fourths and fifths okay. and sixths. So it, in that sense, it's a canonical, a legal. It's a, it's a term which points to, for example, that Christ is the inheritor of the Davidic promises, uh, which many theologians argue came both through Joseph in the natural order, but also through Mary as a member of, of the priestly, uh, 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 priestly family also. Uh, so there are a lot of things that can be uh, a priestly and kingly family. A lot of things that can be made of that. But not one of them is that they have, he had uh, children, that she had children other than our Lord himself. All right, Larry, thanks so much uh, for your email. Here's an interesting one from Grant. What is your opinion of the scriptural rosary? I'm not, not really familiar with it. Uh, for years, uh, if I... If I can take a stab at what might be intended there, you can say the rosary and using the scriptural verses associated with it as Mm -hmm. your meditation. Okay. You could do that. If that's what it's talking about, then that's probably a great aid to to it. Uh, Years ago, the Daughters of St. Paul put out a little book of call. I think it was even called the scriptural rosary. Sure was. And for every bead, there was a little scriptural verse. So Mm -hmm. you could say the rosary and glance at the, you know, and you get a continuing inspiration. And what the purpose of this is, is to make it go beyond the, uh, you know, the, the, the praying of it, the rote praying of the prayers to a deeper connection to the meaning of that mystery mm-hmm. through the the scriptural references that we're giving. And I know that's, I think, in the Daughters of St. Paul yeah. book that I used for years. And if the scriptural rosary he's talking about is, is similar to that, uh, then it can actually be a very beneficial thing in making a jump off to your own meditation, not relying mm-hmm. on scripture alone or on 
or somebody else's meditation on, on Scripture, but ultimately to sort of piece the pieces together. And that's what meditation is really about, piecing the pieces together regarding that mystery, whether mm. the source is Scripture or the writings of Augustine or you know, a particular saint or something, and you start to make sense of the whole and it becomes a synthetic and integrated whole. That's what meditation does. Uh, and so it could be a very great aid if that's what its purpose is. I remember back in the day, uh, they actually put out a phonograph record with uh, the scriptural rosary. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, way, I mean, way back in the day. Uh, here's a great question from Adam. I think you'll get a kick out of this. Did Jesus have a guardian angel? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know if there's any real church opinion on that. You could make an argument that he didn't he didn't need one. Mm. Uh, he was the second person of the Trinity. But what he did have is hosts of angels ministering to him. Yes. And that's different. It is. I, in a way, it's different. He didn't buy, have the need that we have because we have a great many obstacles to holiness and to getting through life. Mm. Uh, he didn't need that but he had the worship of the entire heavenly court and the ministrations of the entirely heavenly court. Okay. We'll close out with this one from Erica. Is the book of Job real or is it just a story? And if it is true, why don't we call him Saint Job? I'll have to look in the martyrology we were talking <laughs> about. I, there may very well be a Saint Job. Yeah. Uh, two schools of thought on that, mm -hmm. that... Uh, a real individual or as sort of a morality play or a meditation uh, because what is it teaches us? It teaches us that God is merciful and wants his salvation of all, uh, whereas sometimes human beings are grumpy and these people treat me badly. They don't deserve to be saved. <laughs> so it makes, a, it makes a very keen impression on you. And, and whether it was historical or a, or a midrash, a reflection on these truths uh, by some Jewish author, I think uh, we can ask him when we get up there, or looking. we can ask somebody else if he's not up there. <laughs> <laughs> We're looking forward to that, absolutely. Well, we want to thank everybody uh, for joining us on this edition of Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. Be sure to join us for Father John Tregilio on Open Line Monday. He was uh, here on the campus this week, wasn't he? was he? indeed. Along with Father Ken Briganti, and uh, always enjoy everything that they do. And tell you what, his homilies uh, for the morning mass were just rocking and rolling. Did you see all the emails that have come in? From uh, I did. Boy, I oh think boy. That it was fabulous. And I think they appreciate very much because he's such a, a longstanding and familiar uh, figure on EWTN going back to early or fairly early in Mother's, Mother's Day. Very blessed to have him as part of our open line lineup as we are blessed to have you, Colin Donovan. Well, thank you very much. And thank you, you my well, friend. Colin. Have a wonderful weekend. We hope everybody has a wonderful weekend this weekend as we're wrapping up this final week of Advent coming up on Sunday. I'm Tom Price. Have that great weekend that we're talking about. We'll see you next time. God bless.